Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina's vision is to create a future where every pet has a loving home and a healthy life, and they're making it happen through their nutritious pet foods as well as their Pet Finder platform, which matches pets with families. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zach. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, July 9th. Today, will we ever see Trump's taxes? The nursing home that gave risky drugs first and asked questions later. And the power of live music. How long have you been waiting for this Supreme Court decision? My whole life. I just, <laughs> at least for the last year. I mean, we've been waiting to see Trump's financial records for much longer than that since he started running for president. But this decision and the sort of the idea that this fight was going to come before the Supreme Court, we've known for at least the last year. So it gives us kind of a partial answer to something we've been waiting for for a long time. I'm Dave Farenthal, and I'm a Washington Post reporter covering President Trump's private businesses and his financial conflicts of interest. So what was the question that was at the heart of this Supreme Court case? The sort of biggest constitutional question was basically, does the president, by being president, have any kind of immunity, any kind of ability to to say no to Congress or to local prosecutors when they come asking about his personal records, You know, when they want to know about his financial records, his taxes? Does being president give him any power to say no that he wouldn't have if he was a regular person? And how exactly did this end up in the Supreme Court? Like, who were the entities that were fighting to be able to see some of the president's financial records? Well, there were two separate cases. In, in one case, the entity seeking to, to get uh, financial records was Congress, committees of the Democrat-led House. And, and the other it was the Manhattan District Attorney, Cyrus Vance. We'll hear argument next in case 19635, Donald Trump versus Cyrus Vance. Mr. Seculo? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. In these two cases, there was sort of two arguments, two separate arguments. In the case where the Manhattan DA was seeking Trump's taxes. No county district attorney in our nation's history has issued criminal process against the sitting president of the United States. And for good reason. The Constitution does not allow it. Trump was making a very, very expansive claim of presidential immunity. Temporary presidential immunity is constitutionally required by Article 2. And accordingly, the supremacy clause... That while the president is president, he is totally immune from any criminal prosecution, but also any criminal investigation. That You can't, as a prosecutor, you can't even investigate him. You can't even look at his documents. You can't even investigate people close to him while he's president because he's totally immune from that. Counsel, it seems that you're asking for a broadness uh, of immunity that Justice Thomas pointed out is nowhere in the Constitution. I'm not sure why he's entitled to more immunity for private acts than he should be for public acts. Well, he's the president of the United States. He is a branch of the federal government. We only give... In the House case, it was the House that was making a really expansive claim of power. They were saying, look, we're asking for all this financial information from the president, not because we have a piece of legislation ready to go that we need to fill in a blank or that we need to impeach the president tomorrow. We don't really know what we're going to pass, but we need to know it so we know what we need to know. Congress's legislative power, which 
uh, and investigative power, which stems from uh, the, the British Parliament's uh, power, um, is an obvious and integral part of legislation. We obviously can't have Congress passing legislation in, in ignorance. And that argument got themselves in a lot of trouble with the Supreme Court. The House's general counsel spent a lot of the argument basically trying to answer the Supreme Court's question, is there a limit to this power? Are there any uh, limits on, the, on using a president's records as a case study relating to the need for legislation? And I'm wondering what limiting principle you offer us here that, that can prevent that danger. You know, we, the Supreme Court, don't like to give people limitless power over anything. So tell us where your power to subpoena records stops. What is the principle, the limiting principle, that would say legitimate legislative purpose, yes, but not to harass a president from the opposing party? Uh, two answers, Your Honor. First is this question. And the House counsel's answer was basically, it doesn't. And so how did the Supreme Court rule on this? It was seven of the court's justices, the same seven in both cases, voted in the majority. And it included all the court's four liberals, as well as John Roberts, the chief justice, and Trump's two appointees, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. It ruled against Trump, but in a way that is actually a tactical victory for Trump, because Hmm. the Supreme Court in both cases struck down Trump's argument, which is that he, because he was president, had absolute immunity from having to answer any of these questions from either the prosecutors or Congress. It didn't say, you know, give away his records right away. It said, okay, this needs to go back for a lower court to chew on, to sort of set more detailed tests, to examine the requests in more detail. You know, which certainly there's legal grounds for that. But in political terms, it means that if Congress or the public ever sees these returns, these financial records, it's not going to be until after the 2020 election. So basically what you're saying is that the court said that what the White House and what Trump was arguing, that that argument didn't necessarily work. But it's not like the court said, oh, President Trump has to hand over his tax records tomorrow. That's right. I mean, this is a continuation of something Trump has done for years as a private businessman. He uses the courts often not as a way to find right or wrong, but rather as just a way of delaying, intimidating, bleeding money out of his opponents. So, you know, in this case, he did lose, but that's kind of been inevitable. I don't think anybody really expected the Supreme Court would say, oh, you're right, the president is a king until he leaves office and, you know, he's immune from prosecution the whole time. I think probably even Trump's lawyers knew they were going to lose, but they got more than a year of delay out of this, and now they're going to get even more more because the Supreme Court's decision basically was to hand it back to the lower courts with some different instructions. So how do we expect that the Manhattan District Attorney and the House of Representatives are going to respond to this? You say that there's not really a chance that anything is going to come out in terms of the president's financial documents before November, but what are they going to try at least? I imagine both of them will submit new subpoenas or try to tailor their subpoenas to meet the Supreme Court's tests. And I think it'll be easier for the Manhattan DA than for Congress. So they'll go back, craft a new subpoena they think meets the Supreme Court standards. They'll submit it. Trump will challenge it. It will go through one, perhaps two rounds of court decisions before anything, I think, is actually handed over. So, you know, the court's they don't move that fast. And I think, you know, that that's something Trump has always understood. Uh, and I think Congress failed to appreciate it. And maybe the Manhattan DA did too, failed to appreciate how slow these things would move. So it's hard to say, you know, by X date, there'll be a definitive answer. And I think it's worth reminding people, why do we care so much about what is in the president's financial records? 
Well, for two reasons. One, the president is the only president of the last 40 years not to release his tax returns. He's often said that he will or he wants to, but it never has. The second is that Trump's finances are extremely opaque. Uh, We know very little about his company. It's not a public company. He doesn't have to say very much about it. So there's lots of things about its financing, its loans that are unusual and that might create possible entanglements for Trump with other countries, foreign people, just banks in the U.S. that have loaned him money. And so it's hard to evaluate his connections to all those people unless you know what they know, you know, what financial documents Trump has given them, what financial entanglements Trump has. And I mean, it's just amazing to think about how much the questions around that and the implications of the president's financial entanglements, like those questions are even bigger and even more complicated and pressing now than they were potentially in 2016 when he was getting elected the first time. That's right. For one reason, his company's in bad financial shape. I, mean, that, I think that's probably the biggest thing that's changed is the pandemic has hit the Trump organization's properties like it's hit every hotel property around the country. And so they've lost a lot of business. They've been shuttered for a long time. You know, it's one thing to have a loan, uh, a financial entanglement with somebody when your business is doing really well and is making all its payments. But if you have a financial entanglement with somebody when your business has lost a lot of revenue, when it's closed down, when you might need help or a favor or some sort of forbearance, that's when the financial entanglement could actually really bite. And then I think it's also worth remembering that we just came out of an impeachment and that there were a lot of questions that were brought up during the impeachment process that went partially unanswered because we don't really understand what's going on in the president's financial world. That's right. One of the questions raised in the impeachment process and again since then has been the question of President Trump's ties to Russia. Why is he so Russia friendly and pressuring those who oppose Russia? So that was one of the questions I think people had hoped maybe we might answer if we saw Trump's financial records. I don't know if that exists. I don't know if it's something any more complicated than he just feels like President Putin likes him and he wants to like him back. But certainly impeachment highlighted, I think, in a number of ways how little we still know about Donald Trump what his business connections are, what he knows about himself that nobody else does. And, you know, those questions might have been answered by a different outcome today, but they don't seem to be likely to be answered for a long time. So now that we have this Supreme Court decision, how does that change your job and the questions that you're asking going forward? It really doesn't change my job that much. You know, it might have if we'd suddenly gotten a flood of new financial records. You know, one of the constants of covering the Trump organization is dealing with this huge amount of ambiguity where because they're so private, the best source for what's happening inside the Trump organization is the Trump organization. But they have shown themselves to be untruthful or misleading or uh, just opaque about a lot of those things. So it's not like you can automatically take their word for what's going on. So we'll continue to try to build sources within that organization, but also look for people outside the organization who might have some financial documents that help us understand what Trump knows, to help us see the world like Trump does and understand what his, you know, financial connections and entanglements are with uh, people outside his company. So we've been doing that for four years. We're going to keep doing that. And I don't think this decision will change that much for better or worse. David Farenthold covers the Trump family and its business interests for The Post. So this recording came from the son of a resident at the Southeastern Veterans Center. Debbie Sensiper is an investigative reporter for The Post. 
The moment of silence, again, was for veterans Mr. Ed Horn. And the recording was made for him by a staff member inside the home, since, as you know, nursing homes were locked down to visitors. This home had lost a lot of people in April and May to COVID-19. And so for days on end, they were playing taps to honor those who died. At one point, they were losing so many people that this song was just playing over and over again. So the Southeastern Veterans Center is one of six homes for veterans and their spouses run by the State Department of Military and Veterans Affairs in Pennsylvania. The nursing homes in my Senate district, it's two miles up the street from where I actually live. Katie Muth is a state senator in Pennsylvania. I usually attend quarterly meetings with them. Um, I was there in beginning of March for their um, meeting about COVID prep. Thousands of nursing homes have had outbreaks But in this home, very basic protocols to stop the spread of infection appeared to have failed, according to caregivers in the home. So the first person that I spoke with, she was telling me and she was crying and I was trying to write everything down. And I, you know, and I really was baffled by how bad it had gotten. They weren't isolating sick patients. So sick patients were left to sleep in rooms alongside healthy patients. Communal dining didn't stop until early April. Nurses who had been assigned to work with COVID-19 patients on one day would be moved into a so-called clean unit or a healthy unit the next day. And so I, I sort of kept asking her, like, well, why is like supervising staff letting this happen? Like, why aren't they sending people to the hospital? Like, like what is going, like, why? How many people do we know died at this nursing home from COVID-19? The state attributes 42 deaths to COVID-19 at this home. It makes it one of the deadliest outbreaks, not the deadliest, but one of the deadliest outbreaks in the state of Pennsylvania. The Philadelphia Inquirer had done some great reporting here on the breakdowns in this home. But what we found by looking at medical records and reports and talking to so many people was that when all else failed, they turned to this unproven and experimental drug that had been touted by President Trump in March as a potential off-label treatment to COVID-19. A lot of good things have come out about the hydroxy. A lot of good things have come out. I'm guessing that's hydroxychloroquine. Yep. And you'd be surprised at how many people are taking it, especially the frontline workers, before you catch it. They called it in the home the COVID cocktail, the so-called COVID cocktail. We actually found that reference in a medical record. And the cocktail was five days of treatment of Plaquenil, which is hydroxychloroquine, with azithromycin, which is commonly used to treat infections. And that combination, we know anecdotally and we know from studies, has been tried on COVID-19 patients. And it has been found in some cases to be pretty dangerous. One nurse called me and she's like, yeah, we gave everybody Plaquenil until the 22nd of April. And I said, Plaquenil, like what's Plaquenil? And because I didn't know the brand name of it, you know, and she's like, you know, hydroxychloroquine. And I was like, who's everybody? Like I was just like mind blown, you know. And they just started for two and a half weeks in April dosing anyone who showed symptoms of COVID-19, including those who hadn't been tested 
and including those that had heart problems and other conditions that are known to cause serious side effects. And they did this over the objections of some of the nurses who were, you know, giving out these drugs. And they did it without the full consent of family members. And they did it largely behind closed doors because even when state lawmakers started asking questions, they got very few answers about what exactly happened and and how and why these drugs were dispensed. And what are the risks of that, just giving hydroxychloroquine to people in ways that are not necessarily approved by doctors or the FDA? The FDA in March issued what they call an emergency use authorization that said, this is not the way we use hydroxychloroquine. It's it's an anti-malarial drug. Um, And it's been used for decades to treat malaria. But they said, you know, if you want to use it in an off-label way, at least use it in hospitals so that patients can be monitored by doctors or use it in clinical trials. But instead, as we now know, it's been used more broadly than that, including in nursing homes and in particular in this nursing home. And the FDA has since revoked its emergency use authorization because studies have found that the death rate is actually higher for people who have used this drug for COVID-19 and that it can cause serious, serious heart problems. So you said that that these patients and their families did not have an opportunity to consent to being prescribed these drugs. How did they find out that these drugs were being given to them and, and how did this become public? So I know that the families received phone calls from the home to at least tell them that there was a medication change, which is, it's mandatory. I mean, that's a federal requirement that patients and their families must be made aware of medication changes and and offer the, you know, the right of refusal, just like we are when we go to see a doctor. I think the issue here was that the families didn't know what they were being told. In some cases, the home said, oh, Plaquenil. And nobody had heard of Plaquenil. Maybe they heard of hydroxychloroquine, but not Plaquenil. And so it was with limited knowledge from the patient's families. Some of them said we weren't told about the benefits or the risks, and we really didn't know what was happening until it was all over. And this is a basic question, but why were all of these patients in in this nursing home being given this drug? Like, especially considering that it was known to be risky and that the FDA had made it clear that it could only be used under very particular circumstances. That's the big question. That's the big question. Some people say it was like a Hail Mary, you know, we were going to lose them anyway. Let's just try this. But the state really hasn't explained. The Department of Military and Veterans Affairs has oversight. So does the Pennsylvania Department of Health. The Pennsylvania Department of Health won't even confirm whether hydroxychloroquine was ever administered in the home. And the State Department of Veterans Affairs acknowledges that it was, but they essentially said it was up to the doctors, the providers at the home to decide when and if to use it. So there's really not been an explanation from the state, from the center, from anyone on why they turned to this unproven and experimental drug, even for patients who weren't even diagnosed with COVID-19. I mean, at least in one case, the medical records indicate it was given more for preventative use rather than anything else. 
And for people who were working in the nursing home, like these nurses, what did they say about what their experience was like working there during this public health crisis? Yeah, that is such a good question. I feel so badly for frontline caregivers because they're going in day after day. They're risking their own lives. They're risking the health of their families. They often don't have personal protective equipment. And in this home in particular, the nurses have been there for years. They've really come to care about the veterans that they have you know, known and their spouses. They felt so helpless. And so these are rank and file nurses and aides. And these are people they've taken care of, some of them, for years. So it is like their family. You know, they're used to death. It's a nursing home. They're used to death. But not, not like this. Not so many people so quickly. What have the officials from this nursing home said about both the allegations that they were giving people hydroxychloroquine basically willy-nilly and and under the wrong kinds of circumstances, but also some of the other issues that you highlighted about how people were generally treated and cared for there? Right. So the home has said nothing. The head of it is that they call them commandants, and there is an interim commandant who was not there while all of this was happening, and she has declined to comment. The state essentially said it was up to the home to do this, and the people who did it didn't return our phone calls. When the Philadelphia Inquirer broke some of these stories about infection control lapses at the home, the state in May um, suspended the director, the commandant of the home and the director of nursing. But that's where it ended. And so I think the people involved here are, are looking for, for more accountability than, than just that. And so what is going on at this nursing home now? Like, are there still people who are being treated there? Is there still an outbreak of COVID-19 there? The death rate declined after the the end of the use of hydroxychloroquine. So, for example, the death rate in April was 47 people. May, it was nine. and June, I believe it was two. So isn't that fascinating? There's still many positive cases, over 50, I believe. And in fact, I've had several nurses in the last couple of weeks tell me that even though there's a new administration and even though things are supposed to have been changed there, that nurses who are working in the so-called sick units one day might be transferred to the clean units the next day, which is, you know, opens up the door for cross-contamination. So there's still fear among the staff there that they're not doing everything they can to prevent the spread of this infection. When you think about the situations and and allegations that are being raised of what happened inside this particular nursing home, what do you think that tells us about what is going on inside of nursing homes around the country and the kinds of questions that are being asked? In terms of hydroxychloroquine, we just don't know what's going on in nursing homes around the country. Though President Trump touted the drug, and we know the Veterans Administration bought a lot of tablets to dispense, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which regulates the 15,000 nursing homes in this country, didn't provide any guidance on use of the drugs. And so there's no tracking system. So we just don't know how many nursing homes in this country turned to hydroxychloroquine when all else failed. It's just nobody's ever tracked it. 
And, you know, because nursing homes are largely shut down, not only is it difficult, if not impossible, for family members to get inside, but a lot of routine inspections have been called off. And every state has an ombudsman that goes into nursing homes to investigate abuse and neglect complaints. They haven't been allowed inside. Even though you could argue that now is the time that is most important than ever to That's right. make sure that nursing homes are, are providing the type of care that they need to be providing. All of those, that kind kind of independent watchdogs are barred from entering. And so really nursing homes in a lot of ways have been left to their own devices. And what we're seeing here is they turn to this drug and they didn't really have to answer for it. This is just what they chose to do. Debbie Sensiper is an investigative reporter for The Post. One more thing. My name is Michael Andor Broder, and I'm the classical music critic for the Washington Post. And last month, I had the opportunity to go to an actual live music concert after months of quarantine. In the past, getting ready for a concert that I was going to review is a pretty straightforward process. I would listen to the music a few times ahead of time. I'd do some reading about it. I'd get my ticket, and I'd head off. This time it felt a lot more like I was preparing for battle. It was a nerve-wracking assembly of hand sanitizer and gloves and a hanky so that I could wipe my glasses off. I had a big bottle of water. I had a printout of the garden where we were going to be listening to the concert. I was just full of this anxiety that maybe this wasn't a good idea. Maybe this was too soon. Maybe it was crazy that we were all gathering together for something as simple as a chamber concert. But it was funny, once I got to the venue, and once I heard the musicians tuning up in the house, it triggered this familiar response where I just felt comforted. I was hearing these familiar noises of horns and strings. And it felt... It felt familiar enough that the anxiety that I had just started tapering down a little bit. I felt more relaxed. The concert itself was a short hour-long program, slight variations of which were presented at three times during the evening. And for each performance, they would allow about 35 to 40 people into this courtyard. All of our spots, designated numbered spots, were marked out in a grid, and we were all socially distanced. All the little accommodations that we made, these seemed like compromises that everyone was willing to make. And you could tell after the different chamber groups would finish their pieces, the appreciative applause was a little bit more enthusiastic than normal. I think people were just excited to be in the presence of music rather than hearing it through their computers like we'd been doing for weeks and weeks. You know, I was still a little antsy about being around more people than I had seen in months. But, you know, there was something about 
just hearing people play right in front of you and, and actually feeling the vibrations of the music coming and sort of committing your attention to one thing rather than you know, the kind of scatterbrained, frantic experience that life has been over the last few months. All of it was very relieving and very soothing um, and very welcome. You know, it's hard to say if this is going to be the way things look in the near future. It's hard to predict anything about the near future right now, but from a strictly logistical point of view, while everything was in order and everything was safe, I know that financially, it's got to be a non-starter to run a concert this way. But in terms of it being an, just an experiment to get us out of the house and get us back together and reestablish the community, I think it was a great success. It's hard to know when we will be in front of an orchestra again. It's hard to know when we will hear a chorus of voices singing again. It's hard to know when we'll be in a concert hall again, sitting next to people but in the meantime, I'm glad that there are people taking steps to just try new things out. And this felt like that. And that simple gesture of goodwill and of community felt more important to me than taking any sort of substantial steps towards normalcy or towards what was normal. Michael Broder is a classical music critic for The Post. Special thanks to classical movements, musicians from the National Symphony Orchestra and musicians from the Alexandria Symphony Orchestra. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode, a look at the crackdown in Hong Kong. Overnight, it basically feels like we all woke up to a new reality and we live in a different city right now. Hong Kong is very much now mainland China. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 